Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God, I'm so glad you're here. Whether you're in Gospel Saving Church today or listening to us on SoundCloud or listening to a podcast of us, did you know that by doing so, you are showing God that He is important to you? Why? Whenever you take time out of your life and you make a provision for God and you put you do something for God to learn about Him or learn more about Him, this is totally pleasing unto the Lord. This is God's will for all humanity, to learn about Him and to learn more about Him until the day we die. If this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed, and I come to you from McKinney, Texas. And this is Gospel Saving Church and our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. All right, well, we always start with a word of prayer. If you guys would please join me, we ask God for His wisdom and guidance to help us understand His Word and to help me preach. And so anyway, if you just join me in a word of prayer, I would truly appreciate it. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us all here today, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, for leading and guiding those of us that are your children, Lord. If any that are listening out there right now that aren't, that are your children, but they're newer children, Lord, and they don't know that prayer yet, Lord, I pray that you would burden their hearts with that prayer, Lord. Lead me and guide me, Lord God. Lead me and guide me by your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that that would be the prayer that they pray. And then also, Lord, as I was just talking to a young lady at work this week, Lord, about you, a newer, a newer in the, in the faith kind of come back to you, Lord, kind of Christian, Lord. She, uh, she was asking me how to pray. And I said, well, pray this way, Lord, let your will be done in my life, Lord God, because we know by Jesus's prayer that he taught the disciples, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord. We know that your will is not perfectly being done on this earth right now as in a whole, Lord. So we want your will to be done in our lives, Lord God. Please, God, let your will be done in Gospel Saving Church. Let your will be done in the hearts of those that are listening. Let your heart, let your will be done, Lord God, in the hearts of those that will listen to this message, Lord. And as I pray before, help us to understand your word by your Holy Spirit, of course. And also, Lord God, let us not be the same people after we listen to your word, after we read your word, after we hear this message, Lord, as we were before. Change us, Lord God. Let your Holy Spirit power be there to change us or be here today to change us. Lord God, those maybe that have walked away from you or don't know you and they found themselves just compelled to listen, Lord, move on their hearts to bring them to the cross. And Lord, those of us that are yours, Lord, bring us closer and nearer unto your will and unto your perfect plan for our lives. We thank you, Lord, and we love you, Lord, and we praise you, dear God. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So you can turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 21 today. Uh, but I won't read them and teach them till after my thoughts from last week's message, the promise of the Father. Last week I talked to you about how the promise of the Father, which was, was and still is the Holy Spirit's fire or power or ability that God gives His kids to do the work that He calls us to do until Christ returns at, while He's away. The most visible gift that the disciples received on the day of Pentecost was the gift of speaking in tongues, of course, which was given to them at that time, remember, to reach the people that were down below on the streets that had come to Jerusalem for for the Jewish festival of Shabbat. I had also spoke about the false idea that some have that if a person is truly saved, they will 100% for sure speak in tongues, remember? And we looked at scriptures where Paul said, hey, that... 
some to some get this and to some get that, and to, but not all get the same. To, God kind of gives as he wills, right? I also spoke about 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul wrote about how many different gifts God, that God gives of his Holy Spirit to, to his children, right? And to those whom he's saving. And there are many, but the major point that I closed with was the fact that not that all 100% of all Christians would speak in tongues, but 100% of true Christians or people that are being saved should have at least one spiritual gift that Paul writes about, you know, writes to us about in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4. If you listen to this message, I challenged you, uh, all of you, to judge yourselves as to it, to see for yourself out of those scriptures if you had at least one of those spiritual gifts that Paul named off for us. And why did I do that? Why is that important that we judge ourselves, that we look to the scriptures and that we see that our lives line up with what God says in his word? Well, there are many in our world today that believe themselves to be saved, yet they're not. They're deceiving themselves because they don't exhibit even one spiritual gift from scriptures. And then on the contrary, they live their lives practicing sinfulness, which is completely backwards to what the Bible says that a Christian is. And they are deceiving themselves because they're only Christians by name and not by biblical standards whatsoever. If you consider yourself a Christian, then I hope that you took me up on my challenge and you judge yourself on whether or not you had any gifts or or not. Or if you are listening today and you didn't listen last week, I pray that you go to these two sections, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, and Ephesians 4, 11, so that you can judge yourself as to if you are really saved and have one of these gifts that Paul lists off for us in Scripture. And I pray that you examine your ways to see if you live your life practicing sin or not. One of the things that the Bible tells us, John, in fact, in the Bible tells us that if we are his, then we will be like him. We will be living like Christ. Remember also Christ said in Mark 16, 17 through 18 about spiritual gifts. He said, and these signs will follow those who believe. And they were the works that God was going to do through you by his Holy Spirit, by the working of the Holy Spirit, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he was going to give you once you were saved. Okay, so if you do judge yourself in this matter, God will bless you because you are seeking out something that's important in his word and you're showing him that you are concerned about his word and your eternal life and so on. But if you don't, you're really just showing God that you don't really care about your eternal life and and being with him forever. My last two thoughts on this point. If you search out his word on this matter and you judge yourself and find out that you don't exhibit any of the spiritual gifts in scripture that God tells you and and that you find yourself, well, yeah, I do practice a life full of sin. Y'all want you to examine yourself according to the scriptures, right? And then if you find yourself and you, you, you are this way, then please, I pray that God leads you to repent. And that means have a change of mind toward God. Have a change of heart toward God. Turn your mind and and realize, wow, I'm not where God wants me to be. I'm not a child of God. God, please forgive me. I need Jesus. I need to be saved. And then you need to surrender to him today before it's too late. Make Jesus your Lord. And deed, not just word only. 
And if you find that you do exhibit a spiritual gift or gifts that God tells us about in Scripture, then I implore you, please walk in them and be obedient to God with them and bear good fruit with them. And don't become lazy and trample on God's grace and live in sin just because you may have them and and because you feel secure in your salvation. Because if you do, I just pray that you go read Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus gives the parable of the, of the talents. To one got five, to one got three, and to one got one. And the ones that were obedient and walked in the gifts that God gave them. And they didn't squander them. To them, well done, good and faithful servant. To the other one who did nothing, God's servant who did nothing with what God gave them and what the gifts, the spiritual gifts and the duties that God gave them, to him he said, be gone, be gone, be cast away into the outer darkness. You you unprofitable and wicked servant. And I pray that you please walk in the gifts that God has given you and be profitable and, and, and you know be a good servant to God all the rest of the days of your life until you die, of course. All right. Well, praise God. Let's get into our new message for today, our new sermon for today. Our new title for our sermon is Peter's First Sermon, Part 1. We'll at least have a Part 2, maybe even a Part 3, depending on what God leads me to do. But Peter's First Sermon, Part 1, we're going to read over Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. If you, you, want, to, if you want to join me, you can. If you want to listen along, you can, whichever you'd like to do. It's, let God lead you, whatever you'd like to do. The Bible says this. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third day or the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that last verse. For it shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who's whoever? Is it is it just the elect? Is it just just maybe that certain special section that God set apart in heaven just for, you know, the certain people? Who who's whoever? I, don't get me started, but whoever's everyone. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I can make a whole sermon just on that. Amen. All right, well, praise God. Our last section section of Scripture, Peter and the others were gifted by God with the spiritual gift of tongues. And I told you that the main reason why God did that at the time was to get the attention of those who he was reaching out to, the Jews on the streets below the apartment who had come to Jerusalem to worship God for the Jewish feast of Shabbat. Well, you know what God did there, don't you? God went fishing. What he did was, is God had his little, you know, his little rod and he had his little bait on there and he put his bait on there called the things that happened in the upper room there in the upper apartment and he put his little bait out there and he went fishing and he he did these things that made these people sit up and take notice and then what he did was is he wanted to see who would respond who would do something upon his tactics to try to get people to pay attention 
because he had something that he wanted to tell them. God does the same with his evangelists today. I've been there. During our outreaches, God would allow many things to happen many different times to cause people to take notice. And then once they did, once the uh, there were times that a, a guy'd be in a parking lot and he had a flat tire, and then oh, there we were. Well, the flat tire was there, and there was their opportunity. Hey, man, can I help you change that tire? Oh, man, that'd be great. And guess what? Just like while Paul preached the gospel while he was making tents, so while we would change the tire, help the guy with the tire or whatever, we would kind of share the gospel with him. So here, God doesn't stop fishing. He's still fishing today. Do any fish bite in God's day here back in Acts chapter 2? Of course they did. God's methods always work, for God knows the best way to reach all people. We know because a multitude of Jewish people came together to hear all the commotion. Remember the, the noise of the rushing wind, the Holy Spirit, the, the Galileans, the disciples each speaking in each of the people's native tongues. So, now that that's happened, now what? Well, now what, right? Well, just like with me, just like what, how God used to use me on the streets and these special things to happen and how then we were supposed to preach... Now that God had their attention and they've shown interest in his method of reaching out to them, just like he did for me, now what? Now what happens? Well, Scripture tells us. Peter preaches his first sermon. Before now, Jesus Christ was the main speaker for the entire group of Christians. And now we see here that he passes the mantle to Peter. This section also tells us that Uh, seemingly that Peter got more than one spiritual gift on the day of Pentecost, right? What do we see? We, We got right away that all the disciples got the gift of tongues. But what do we see here with Peter's first sermon? We see Ephesians 4.11. And he, God himself, gave to some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers. And here, Peter gets up, and he starts to do what? He starts to teach Peter had never before this ever taught a sermon, ever. Jesus did all the teaching. Peter usually was the one to ask stupid questions and to jump up and say, Hey, Lord, you know, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And the Lord would go, oh, goodness, God, give me strength. You know, I could, I could see Jesus, right? But that was Peter. Now, but now Peter, right before this, no preaching. And then right after the gifts were poured out, boom, he's now a preacher. Wow, isn't that awesome? Anyway, Peter's first sermon as follows. We're going to go through it again. I'm going to do things a little different than I normally do today. I'm going to go through them and I'm going to kind of talk about it as I go, making certain points as I go. Read verses 14 and 15 again. But Peter, standing up with the 11, this would be him and the other 11 apostles. This, this wasn't the whole group of 120 people. This was just the main leaders of the Christian church, Peter and the other 11, the 12 chosen apostles by God. And, and it says that they stood up with the 11. He stood up with the 11. They probably walked out onto some type of balcony, remember, because they, they were in a second floor kind of apartment. So he's not going to, where is he going to walk out to? He walked out probably onto a balcony or something. He raised his voice and said to them, that means he spoke loud enough so that all could hear that were below. Remember, verse 5 tells us that there was a multitude. 
This multitude either means that there was hundreds or thousands of people below. Remember, this was the Jewish feast of Shabbat that they were all here for. So there wasn't just five or ten people coming to this. You had all Jews coming from all the known Jewish you know, world where they had gone to, you know, where they had traveled to, where they had moved to. They all were supposed to come back to Jerusalem to, to have this feast. And so here they were, hundreds and thousands on the streets below, and Peter is preaching his first sermon, and they, he, God wants them to listen. What does he say? Just as I do when I start my sermons, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, he addresses his audience. Same as I do when I say, good morning, everyone, you know, welcome to Gospel Saving Church. You are coming from SoundCloud or in in my church or whatever. He addresses his audience, same as I do mine. He says, he goes on to say, let this be known to you and heed my words. I want you to know something, guys. And not only do I want you to know something, I want you to be warned by what I'm saying. That's for the, what the word heed means. For these are not drunk. Hey guys, don't think that these guys are drunk. He's addressing the naysayers in verse 13, which mockingly said of the disciples at, at their speaking of tongues, they are full of new wine. As you suppose, Peter goes on to say, since it is only the third hour of the day. These critics thought that the 120 were drunk. In reply, Peter says, Nobody amongst us is going to be drunk. Hey, guys, it's only 8 to 9 o'clock in the morning. And even for our day today. Now, I used to have a relative that was drunk at that time in the morning. But generally, even if you're a drunk, you're generally not drunk at about 8 or, clock, eight or 9 o'clock in the morning. You, generally, a drunk is up really, really late at night. They get up really, really late in the morning. And then they don't even start until 11 o'clock or noon. And then they're usually drunk for the rest of the day. But here it's only 8 to 9 in the morning. And these people are all professing godly people. And of course, they're in this upper room. Nevertheless, he says, hey, be warned, these are not drunk. On that note, Peter could have pointed out the important details he knew in verses 6 and 7, where it says, everyone heard them speak in his own language. And listen, they were amazed and marveled because those who spoke were Galileans. Why would this be an important point? Why would this be something that Peter could have pointed out to show them, hey, we're not drunk, and instead just the opposite, there's something supernaturally powerful going on here? Well, uh, why were they amazed that these Galileans spoke in their languages so well? Remember, they were amazed and marveled, right? Well, Galileans' natural language was uneducated and sloppy. Okay, in fact, according to a source I found, because of how Galileans spoke so differently than other Jews, early Judean rabbis thought poorly of them, accusing them of sloppy speech. There are several anecdotes in the Babylonian Talmud where the Galileans were mocked due to how they didn't distinguish between certain consonants and vowels, sounds that were much more distinct and articulate in in the prevalent Judean and Babylonian dialect. To me, it kind of sounds like that the natural Judean language actually was kind of like a drunk language just as they spoke when they were just sober. You know, they slurred their words. And, and you know, you got to think of something. God showed me something really powerful here in the scripture too, right? So these were Galileans. The people were surprised. They spoke so well. Peter could have pointed that out. We're not drunk. Instead, you know, our normal language sounds drunk. This was the language that Jesus spoke the Galilean language. Now think about that. He's the king of glory. 
He was born in a barn in a, or in a stall, right, with a bunch of animals. And then not only that, but he's born to like the weakest, most kind of like looked down upon peoples of all the Jews. He was born in Galilee, right? Or he, was, he lived in Galilee, grew up in Galilee. He would have spoke Galilean. And that, that kind of shows me that Jesus came and, and it was, it's so powerful that he, he went to the lowest of the low of even their society. He was born amongst the lowest of the low. He could have been born even a mid-class Jew or even an upper-class Jew, maybe a Jew of like a priest or something or a, or a high priest or something, but no. Jesus was born like a low-class Jew and spoke a low-class kind of poor kind of kind of inner-city slang language that he spoke. And I mean, that, that's how much God wanted to put the shame people and say, hey, this is me. And, and then the things that he did blew people's mind. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Peter says here, hey, no way that these guys are drunk. There's something else going on here this day in Jerusalem. But what was it? Look at what Peter says next. Verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is the first part of Peter's first sermon. And it comes from the Old Testament. And it comes from the book that God inspired Joel to write. Chapter 2, verses 28-32. That Joel wrote, God led him to write these things. Scholars are uncertain because there's not really any particular characters in Joel that can be named. But it was written between the 5th and ninth century B.C. Right? This prophecy Peter quotes from Joel is almost identically word for word, except for a couple of different differences, which will happen as you understand the New Testament is in Koine Greek and the Old Testament is in Hebrew and Chaldean. And whenever you transfer and you translate one language to another, there will always be slight differences. As I know, I have a, I have actual, uh, an Old Testament Bible with just Hebrew on one side and just English on the other side. And then when you hold that Hebrew Bible up to my New King James Version English Bible, they're, they're close and the meanings are right there, but there's all, there's a little bit of a difference. And this is not like a New King, uh, New King James translation and so on and so forth. So there's always going to be differences. Um, but there is one that I do believe Peter makes on purpose. And I will point that out in just a moment. Anyway, getting back. This translation that Peter takes from Joel chapter 2 is almost word for word. And this event at Pentecost with the disciples marked the beginning of a very awesome and supernatural time in all of human history. A time like no other that any person had ever lived in prior to this day. And by the way, in case you didn't know, it's a day we're actually still living in today. And it'll be a day, a time period that we'll be in all the way till the end of the world. What time was and still, and is it going to be until the end? What time is this marking? Look at the rest of verse 17 through 20. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. So this is the time of the last days. This is what the day of Pentecost represented. It was the start to the end, okay? And this is where the one of the only differences in Peter's differences in his what he says versus Joel. This is the only difference here. Peter says last days. Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward. And that's why I don't think it was a translation change. I think that Peter did it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but why? Well, the Holy Spirit told Peter, hey, you are in the last days now. In the last days, well, they're right around the corner. When Jesus left, he, he told his disciples, I'm coming soon. 
Now, soon to us and soon to him is different, but soon to God, I mean, one day is a thousand, or one year is a thousand, a thousand years is a day, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's still coming soon, but it's not soon like we think soon like tomorrow, right? It could be tomorrow, but I'm saying back then, 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't mean I'm coming tomorrow. So anyway, the uh, Holy Spirit told Peter that, uh, you know, this is the last days. So Peter changed it and said, hey, this is the last days. This event at Pentecost started the last days of the entire world. What happens in these last days that started with the disciples on the day of Pentecost that Joel prophesied about thousands of years ago now? He goes on to tell us, verse 17, the end of verse 17, he goes on to say that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. A time when God will choose, God has chosen to take his Holy Spirit from heaven and to like, almost like you'd like take a, a, a vase and you'd pour water onto a plant to water it, to pour out his Holy Spirit upon people, upon all the earth. What will happen, happen to people after they have been touched and been God's Holy Spirit's been poured out upon them? Still verse 17, the very last of it. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. What's that all mean? Well, your, your people will prophesy. I'll speak to people and they're going to be able to know some things in the future. Now, prophecy only comes by God. No man knows anything about prophecy. No man, I don't know, you don't know generally what's going to happen even 10 minutes from now. Okay, that's just because we don't. Our minds are finite. We can't live anything but in the moment that we're in or in the moments that we've been and moments that are hopeful. But we certainly don't know that those hopeful moments are going to be 100% sure moments. We hope that something happens tomorrow. We hope that some, you know, that we wake up tomorrow and that we go to work tomorrow. But we, we don't know. We, you know, anything could happen between now and tomorrow morning. So prophecy, what he's saying here is this prophecy. Hey, I'll pour out my Holy Spirit. And when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, when they're touched by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to show them things. And they're going to speak of things that are going to come from, you know, days, weeks, months, years, all on ahead. People are going to do that. He goes on to say, your young men shall see visions. People will see visions of things. People have seen visions of things that were going to come. I've seen visions of things that were going to come. He says, your old men shall dream dreams. People shall dream dreams. And they're going to they're gonna see things that aren't right now. And it's going to be awesome. And it's all going to be prophetic. And this is what we've seen happening to this day. This is what started at the day of Pentecost when God poured out his Holy Spirit upon all mankind right? And by the way, in case you didn't know this, this is what's really been happening, and especially a lot, a lot, a lot lately in the Muslim world, believe it or not. In fact, just for the heck of it, go onto YouTube and type in your search bar, Muslims see visions or have dreams of Jesus. Wow. Wow. Your search results will be full of titles like Thousands come to Christ through visions of Jesus. Thousands come to Christ through dreams about Jesus. In fact, this is so awesome to me. It's so important to me. I've been seeing this for years. Uh, I'm, I will, after today's sermon, I'm going to put a YouTube video up on the homepage of Gospel Saving Church about two converts, Miriam and Marziah. And if I misspoke their names, if they're maybe listening today, I, I'm sorry. They're from Iran. Okay, and they're two Muslim women. They grew up in the Muslim faith, and they themselves 
They kind of always questioned Islam. They always considered themselves to have just a personal relationship with God, the creator, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't think he was the God of Islam, but they didn't know who he was. And so they searched and they searched and they searched. And then one day, lo and behold, they didn't know one another, but they each had a dream or and dreams about Jesus Christ. And then he revealed himself to them, and then they surrendered to the Lord. And I'm going to put their testimony up on the church website. I have about a 35 or 40 minute or so testimony that they give the two of them, how they didn't know one another, and then how they each got saved, and how God led them to one another, and then they started working for the Lord, and they were witnessing to the prostitutes of Iran, and all kinds of stuff. It's a very awesome testimony. But anyway, um, this is a, a non, this is something that's been happening and it's happening in the masses and multitudes, especially right now. Now, I almost wonder, and this is kind of fun to think about, right? I mean, you know, if it happened back almost, almost 2,000 years ago and it's happening more now, does that mean that because the intensity is increasing that we're getting a little closer to the end? I think it is, but how close? Oh, I don't know, but I, and I don't want to speculate. Just, just be excited. We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. Anyway, another story. Uh, you, you've got this other, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a story I've been hearing for years. But uh, these Muslims, and they, they kidnap this Christian pastor, and they bring him to the synagogue. And this comes out of, the, out of the Muslim world, of course. And after they get this pastor to the Christian church, and they've got his head covered, he's thinking, okay, I'm ready to die for Jesus. Okay, let's just, you know, Lord, here I come. I'm ready to see you. They take the blindfold off. Here are hundreds and thousands of Muslims sitting in this mosque. And they all have one thing in common. They're all sitting there and they sit down and he's looking at them and they go, and one guy says, hey, everybody in here has had a dream of Jesus and we want somebody to tell them. We want somebody to tell us about him. You're the one. Tell us about him now. We know, we know you're a real Christian. Uh, another one that God reminds me of just now was one where uh, these Muslims walk into this church and they've got these machine guns. And this one may be a little hard to verify, but I know it came from a Christian ministry that I, that I you know, uh, admired at the time. And they walked into the church and they had their guns. And they said, okay, guys, hey, who's ready to die for Jesus right now? Who's ready to die for Jesus right now? If you're not ready to die for Jesus right now, get out and leave right now. Well, about two-thirds of the congregation stormed out of the room and rushed out of the room, and they went to the doors, they shut and barred the doors, and they came and sat on, they took off their masks, and they sat on, and they said, now, we heard about this Jesus, we want you to tell, him about, we want you to tell us about him, we weren't going to kill you or anything, but we just didn't want any of the frauds or, or those that were fakes or those that could you know, betray us to our, our, you know, our fellow countrymen or whatever, so tell us about Jesus now, and that, that's another one, that's actually happened more than one time. Anyway, uh, whether those last two accounts are 100% true, I know one of them is. The verifiable fact is this. In this last day's age that began at Pentecost, God has been pouring out His Holy Spirit upon mankind in a way that has never been seen in history of mankind, but it's still happening today. And the Bible says, Jesus said here, Peter says here, it's going to happen in these last days. So you can expect this to happen throughout until the end of the world comes of the last days. Moving forward, next Peter goes on to talk about some more things that Joel, by God's inspiration, said would happen in these last days. Verse 18. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, notice he makes that distinction there. Notice the other one said, your sons and daughters. Well, your sons and daughters could mean, you know, just 
anybody, right? That, that they don't have to believe or not believe. These would be these would have been necessarily not Jewish believers or Christian believers. This would have been on your sons and daughters, mean, meaning just people. Because, you know, not all of our sons and daughters are going to believe in Jesus. And not all the Jewish sons and daughters were real Jews either, right? They were all, you know, they were born into the Jewish religion, but it didn't mean that they were really Jewish. But here he makes the distinction, my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And it is true. God's children giving prophecy. I've seen things of the future. I've heard other Christians tell me they've seen things of the future. I've, I've heard in the past, it, it's something that's been happening since the day of Pentecost. Wow, some powerful stuff, right? And all those things are works that God's been doing since Pentecost. What else does Peter preach about in his first sermon that will happen in these last days from Joel's prophecy? Look to verses 19, 20. Look, look at verses 19 and 20. And he goes on to say, God speaking now, but Peter speaking God's words, Joel's prophecy, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So Peter, Joel are preaching about the time or moments in history right before the day that God will bring his greatest judgment on the planet. This coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord is a day where the Lord is going to destroy everything. I'll get to that. Peter actually talks about that in his epistle too. It's a time, but, but this time that Peter's talking about where the, the, the moon is turned to blood and the sun is darkened is the short period of time right before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes where God wipes everything out, where literally God pours out on this planet his indignation, his wrath, his justice, his vengeance upon all mankind like he's never done anything ever in the history of all creation. This day of the Lord where God's going to destroy, Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 3.10, where he says this, but the day of the Lord, same thing, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And here in verses 19 and 20, both Peter and Joel are writing about the time right before the great and awesome day of the Lord where he will come and destroy the earth. John saw and wrote about the event that Peter and Joel write about here in Revelation 6, 12 and 13 when God actually had John in heaven. And God was showing John all these things that were going to come to pass. And John writes this, what he saw in heaven. He says, I looked and he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. These events that Peter preaches about here, including the sun and the moon, will lead up to the great and awesome day of the Lord. But as I said, this time before God destroys everything is going to be the worst time that the world and the people of the world will ever know, hands down, even worse than Noah's flood. If you can believe that, even worse than Noah's flood. God says in his word in the Old Testament by some prophets, more in the book of Revelation, that this time just before the great day of the Lord, just a few to start, he says this, the stars are going to fall from heaven and crash to earth. Now think about that. Think about a huge star coming to earth and crashing, what it's going to do to our planet. The Bible says earthquakes so bad that mountains will be literally moved out of their places. 
A third of the trees and all green grass will be burned up. Something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea creatures become, or a third of the sea becomes blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea die. And a third of the ships are destroyed. At one point, a third of humanity is wiped out. This is a horrible, horrible, horrible time of God's wrath upon this planet to judge those who are on the earth for their sin that they openly commit against him and his Christ and his judgment and payback to all those who have persecuted his children. God tells us that this time is so bad that in Revelation 6, 16, he says that the people there, the unsaved of the world, will be hiding in the clefts of the rocks and they'll be crying out saying, fall on us, hide us from the faith." face of the one who sits on the throne of the wrath of the Lamb. Kill us! This time's so bad, people then are going to wish for death. Please, crush us now! We don't want to have the fierce anger of the Lord anymore. Destroy us now! I would say that's a pretty, pretty bad time. Yet as bad and as horrible as this time will be, and how harsh God's judgment will be on this earth. Think about this sermon that Peter's preaching here. He's talking about this horrible day. His audience would have remembered, and they would have known, because the Old Testament is, this is way before the book of Revelation, but the whole Old Testament is full of the things that God's going to do, this great and terrible day of the Lord. And even in the Old Testament, it talks about woe to those who are even alive in that time, for the great and terrible day of the Lord is going to be so, so, so bad. So Peter's audience knows this, now so do you. And right in the midst of this horrible thing that Peter's bringing up against those who don't love God and those who sin openly against God, look what Peter says to them next. And all of these people we know, because the only believers at the time were up in this upper room. So none of these were Christians. None of these had a security of their salvation. None of these knew that when they died, they were going to go to heaven. And, none, and, and, and all these people knew that, hey, you know, I don't even know if God's going to save me or not. And he says this in verse 21, our last verse of the day. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As bad as this end of the end times will be during the time of God's greatest judgment upon the unsaved of the world, the time when the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to blood, Peter reveals to us a key characteristic of God Almighty here in this verse. He reveals to us His great forgiveness, His great love, and His great salvation toward those that don't know Him. Where? Listen to it again. I could read this verse all day long. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So from now on, from this day forward, Peter's saying, and I'm going to say right now, until and through the time of God's greatest judgment the world will ever know, listen to this, he continues to offer his great forgiveness, love, and salvation to all humanity. Wow, that's a heart grabber. God put it on my heart. I love that phrase. That's a heart grabber. 
That should grab your heart if you consider yourself to be a Christian today. And if it doesn't grab your heart, I hope you check your walk with Christ because it should grab your heart down deep. And it should grab your heart and impact you in a mighty way. Just in case you don't understand what I'm, why I'm saying this, let me explain it. Peter's writing about, again, the greatest time that God's going to bring wrath and judgment upon unrepentant sinners on this earth. And yet, right in the midst of it, Peter tells us that God is still offering people, the same people he's going to destroy, he's offering them hope and salvation. The same people that if they don't repent, if they don't turn to Christ, they will be destroyed, tortured and destroyed by God's wrath on earth. God offers them a chance, though, and a pardon right in the midst of it to turn to Christ and be saved from their sins and his wrath right before he destroys all creation. Wow. This would be like, think about this. If it didn't grab your heart just right, I want it to, okay? You're a family man or a family woman. And you're away and you come home and you find that your wife or husband and five kids have all been murdered brutally. Throats slid open, tortured, beat on, bruised up, and they're all dead. You fall down. Vengeance! I want vengeance! I want to kill the guy who did this! Oh my gosh! I go wrath against him. You go to the police. The police find him. They got him on video. They get him into the room. He confesses. Hey, I did it. You know, I'm, I'm just an evil man. I did it. You're in court. He's sitting there. The judge is about to bang the gavel to the electric chair. One of the worst forms of death ever that man ever created. So bad. You just look it up how bad it is. I'm not going to get into it. But at that moment... This person who murdered your whole family, they fall on their knees before you and they plead and they ask you for your forgiveness, admitting their sin before you, pleading with you, I'm so sorry, I don't know what I did, I've seen the error in my ways, I can't believe what I did, but please, you know what, I want it to stop, I, I, I want to I tell you I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then you, you see the earnest forgiveness in their face. And what do you do? You forgive them. And you tell the judge, hey judge, it's okay. Let them off. And you know what? Come on man, get up. And you come and you make them your best and your dearest and your closest friend. Wow. And in fact, to really equivalent or equivocate what God does to those who repent and take his pardon, whether just before the great and terrible day of the Lord or today in these last days, think of the scenario I just gave you and then think not only does the pardoned murderer of your precious family become your best, closest, and dearest friend, but you actually decide to adopt them as your son or your daughter to make them your new son or daughter and then put them in your will and leave them everything you have. Wow! Because that's what God does for those whom He saves, even though they're sin and they sin in His face, and they're enemies to God, that's what God does for the unsaved person when He saves them, when they repent. Now, 
If after I have explained this pardon of sinners right before the great day of the Lord during his great judgment or right now in the end times and God's offer to them, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If it doesn't touch your heart now deep down in a special way, then there's something severely spiritually wrong with you. Because I just told you what Scripture says. I didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. Bible says before you're saved, you're an enemy to God. You spit in his face, you slap him in his face, you're his enemy. Jesus, if you're not for me, you are against me. And then all the sins you commit. Jesus said, if you even look at a brother to hate, you've committed murder. Who are you murdering? You're murdering God's kids. Whether they're saved or not, everybody's created by God. So everybody that I know is a murderer, and everybody that I know has really murdered other people. Not, not maybe literally like taking a knife and murdering, but just the hatred of, look, that's murder to God. So, but when you repent, when somebody repents, a lost person repents, God takes them in despite all that they've done against him. Even murdering his family, and he makes you a son. A king and a priest, actually, is what God says that he does with the unrepentant who repents and comes to him. Why should this touch your heart? Nobody will ever love you this much that you'll ever meet on this planet. No person will ever love you this much on planet Earth. Isn't his forgiveness, love, and salvation amazing? Christians, just in case you've forgotten, I want to remind you that even though you've been redeemed, and the Bible says you're being saved, You at one time were in need of God's great pardon and forgiveness and amazing love. For you and me, at one time, we were an unrepentant sinner, slapping God in the face and guilty of an innumerable amount of sins that separated us from God. And he offered us the same pardon. Listen, in these last days, Because everybody that's alive right now since day of Pentecost, that's been the last days. And we've all been that partaker of that in these last days. And yet, at the moment you repented, the moment you turned to Christ, the moment you called upon His name, for all who call upon His name shall be saved, He saved you and chose to wipe away the sins that made you guilty before Him and adopt you into his royal bloodline and made you heirs of his kingdom, a generation of kings and priests. And you didn't deserve it, neither did I, and we still don't deserve it, and neither do I. Same as the person in my story today that kills the man's entire family and got pardoned. That story I gave you. And in the remembrance that I brought you here today, of this great and terrible day of the Lord and all of this forgiveness and this love that we've gotten, how ought you as a Christian to live in these last days? Well, the Bible tells us. Peter, right after talking to us about the destruction of earth, tells us this in 2 Peter 3, 11-14. He says this to Christians. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, everything you see, Christians, will be wiped away. Your TVs, your cars, your, your rooms, your houses, your grass, your every, everything will be all dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct, that's one, 
And godliness, that's too, that's what kind of lifestyles we should be living. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking, not looking at our temporary situations, but looking forward. This is the kind of life that Peter says that we ought to be living. Looking for the coming of the Lord. Looking for the day when he's going to deliver us from this life and this existence and this, what we know today. Skip down to 13. He says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just talking about this with my father just yesterday. And he was so ecstatic about the new place that we were going to get to go live when we die, where there's no more sin, no more TVs, no more distractions, no more sickness, no more death, no more nothing. And he was so excited about this new heavens and this new earth where righteousness dwells instead of what we have today. He says this, be steadfast, verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, listen, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Ladies and gentlemen, the only peace that you can have is abiding in Christ, fully trusting in him for everything in your life. That's the only way that you're going to have peace on this planet earth. Fully trusting in and abiding in Jesus Christ no matter what happens, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad things may be, Peter says this is how we should be found by him when he returns, when he comes back, being found in him by in peace. And then he goes on to say, not only just trusting, not only just relying on, without spot and blemish. That means trusting in, living a life for Christ, Obeying his teachings, keeping your focus on his coming and the short time that we have left, totally trusting in him, and then keeping yourself from sinfulness. Keeping yourself unspotted means that you stay away from the things of sin of the world. You live your life in such a way as Jesus did. Not living for the sinful things of the world, but living for Christ. Christians, time is short. Live out your life for Christ, remembering what he did for you and offering you his great pardon. And keep your eyes fixed on his coming. Are you not a Christian today and you're listening to this message? Or are you backslidden away from the Lord and you're living in sin again and you're listening to this message? You think, for some reason, well, I know why. I know why. You felt God's drawing and His love and His strong drawing and you're tired of ignoring His call on your life. You're tired of it. You don't want to live like it anymore. You're tired of it. So you find yourself here. You find yourself listening. What does this guy say? What is Peter's first sermon all about anyway? Here we are. But what do you do? After we read today of this time of great, God's great and horrible judgment upon you and others like you that's coming because of the type of life of sinfulness and rebellion that you live against him, what is the course of action that God desires you to take in these last days concerning the way you live, concerning the judgment that God's bringing on this earth? What should you do? Acts 17, 30 and 31. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Yeah. 
And that doesn't mean that God expects you to all of a sudden straighten up right now, live a better life this moment today, because you can't do that as a lost person. You can't even do that. Bible says you're bound in sin. You are sin's slave. So what does that mean? That means you, in your mind, in your heart, you turn to the Lord, you repent, you, you change your mind toward God, and you think, God, you're right and I'm wrong. I need your way and not mine. Save me, Lord, please save me. And then what do you do next after you repent? He desires that you, Acts 2.21, He desires that you call on the name of the Lord so that you can be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. So many people, so many people are way off on this. So many people. And, and it reads this, and I'm going to explain it the right way, but so many people are, are so wrong in this. That, oh, just pray this prayer and, and you'll be saved. That is not what God is saying. That if, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's exactly what Paul just wrote there, exactly what Acts 17 and Acts 2 both said. You turn your heart to the Lord. You wave the white flag of surrender from your heart to God. That's not a prayer, by the way. That's a, that's a total surrender of your heart to God. I don't want to live this way anymore, Jesus. I need you. Save me, please. And then you call his name out loud. Lord Jesus, save me from what the heart, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And it's not a prayer of salvation. It's a heart change and a cry and a plea to God. And that's what God wants you to do today. If you find yourself here, And you don't even know why you're here, but I just told you. That's what he wants from you. Will you take a step today and surrender to Christ and take God's pardon for your sin and the judgment you deserve? But God doesn't want you to have that judgment. He wants you to call on the name of the Lord so that you may be saved. That's what he really wants from you. Will you take that step today? Will you come and will you surrender? I hope you do. God loves you so much. But you will not be saved unless you repent and surrender to Christ and make Him the Lord and Master of your life. And live that way until you die and you go to be with the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your message today. Thank you so much, Lord, for your words through Peter, Lord God, because we know these are words that you inspired him to write. You inspired Joel to write, Lord. So I just... Thank you, Lord God, for these precious, precious, precious words, Lord. Thank you. And Lord, I I just pray, Lord God, that with these words, both the Christians that I spoke to today and those that are unsaved, hopefully they got saved right, right now already, Lord. But I pray, dear God, that the Christians, Lord, or those that are just recently getting saved, Lord, right now, Lord, I, I pray that they would consider the time short. And as Paul even speaks about redeeming the time, Not living for the evil of the world, Lord God, but living for Christ. Making every moment of their lives count. Looking looking for and hastening the day of the Lord. Looking toward the new heavens and the new earth. Not fixing their minds on this earth and the things of this earth, Lord God, but fixing our minds on eternity and living with eyes stamped with eternity. I pray we would. 
Lord, and consider the lost that are around us and the good news that they need to hear. And Lord, I pray for those that are sitting on the fence right now. Those that are there, they're almost there, Lord God. I just, I just pray that you'd push them off the edge right now and that they would fall headlong toward the cross and grab hold of Jesus and never let go. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, dear God. And ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.